This special Answers for Elders podcast honoring military veterans is sponsored by Carriage. For more information about Carriage, the website is C-A-R-E-A-G-E dot com. Well, this is Chuck Olmstead with Answers for Elders, and uh, each week we do a veterans interview here for Answers for Elders, and with me today is Kent Troy. Uh, Kent uh, was with the U.S. Army, West Point graduate, former protocol officer at JBLM, and uh, Kent, welcome to Answers for Elders. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, you and I just had an opportunity to uh, to get to chat a little bit. We were chatting sports, and you were mm-hmm. talking about various uh, – you're a Saints fan, and uh, talked a little bit about that, but spoke a little bit about that. But we always like to have stories start at the beginning. So let's go back. Where, uh, where were you born? Where were you raised? Okay. I was born in Roswell, New Mexico. My kids tell me that says a lot about me, but uh, my dad was teaching uh, ROTC at New Mexico Military Institute in Roswell, New Mexico, and he's uh, he was a captain at the time, and so that's how where he was, and so that's where I was born, my yeah. brother and I. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was life like growing up in Roswell? Well, I didn't grow up there, so I was an Army brat, so we moved all over the place, but um, I spent uh, my childhood days, I was in 13 schools in uh, 12 grades. Uh, moved all over the place, um, and finally grad- I went to uh, Vienna, Austria, um, when my dad was a military attaché. That's where I met my wife, uh, Ingrid, and uh, then I went to New Mexico Military Institute again, came full circle and graduated high school there as a preparation to try to get into the military academy. Yeah. So... What's you called yourself a military brat, and that's a, a common uh, name given to kids. So, uh, what was that like growing up in that many different locations? Uh, it was um, the locations were fascinating because I got to learn a lot about different places. My education, I think, really started from the geography of knowing a lot more than what you just read about in books or going to schools. But the most important and fascinating thing was the the people that I met, and I've still run into them. So, you know, every once in a while I go to a place and I run into a common thing, and now with social media I'll see somebody that, my goodness gracious, we went to elementary school in uh, Haleiwa, Hawaii together or something like back in the 60s. And so it was. it's more about the people. And so I didn't get to have very good, strong friends. I know people here have... You know, I I have the same friends that when I was in elementary school that I went to high school with. Mm-hmm. Not me. Uh, it was very strange, but uh, I I had the opportunity to to meet a lot more people, but not good strong friends that I would be able to rely on. Since the military, I've been able to to brew that, but at the time, I didn't have that strong friend friendship that a lot of people have in a high and school. The, and that is, yeah, that is something for for kids, isn't it? That they mm-hmm. have those. You know, I have long-term friends from, you know, 50 years ago that, you know, I can relate back to. And we pick up that friendship, you know, even though we haven't seen each other in 10 years. But uh, that's just the nature of the kinds of travels that your family had to do because of uh, being in the Army. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So after high school, what happens to you then? So, um, like I say, I was in high school in Vienna, Austria, at the American International School. I met my, uh, this wonderful lady there. But uh, I went to my senior in high school. I was a rat at New Mexico Military Institute. Not what everybody's imagined of a senior in high school is. Uh, I went there to, uh, to try to get an appointment to West Point, but it actually did not help me at all. It actually hurt me. And I ended up going back to junior college at New Mexico Military Institute for two more years. Hmm. Uh, as a result of that, then I kept applying to the military academy. I never lost sight of that. 
Um, and actually, my dad would take me to the Army football games. He's a West Point graduate also from the class of 46. But he would take me to the Army football games, and I would, I would love the Army, and I wanted to go to West Point play football. I didn't want to go get a commission. I wanted to go play football. Really? And in junior college, I recognized that I was not built to be a college football player. But I never lost sight of wanting to go to the military academy. Uh-huh. So I kept doing that, and after two years of junior college, I was finally accepted to the military academy. And so I, I stopped everything I was doing. I actually had an ROTC scholarship. I threw that away and picked up and went to the military academy for four years. Then. What are the requirements for, uh, to, be, to get into the military academy? What has uh, to happen? There is an age limit that you have to have that you can't be over a certain age. Mm-hmm. Uh, they look at the well-rounded individual. So they look at not only your athletics or your academics or things like that. They look for people that might be Eagle Scouts, uh, student body involvement for that. Um, if you're in different clubs, debate clubs, that sort of thing to do that. But they also look at uh, to make sure that you're an athlete, athlete um, but also a scholar. So they want to make sure that they have, and they call them now the pentathlete. So it's all, let's, let's not have one thing that they're good at. Let's mm-hmm. make sure they're well-rounded in a number of events to do that. And what year was that that you went to the academy? So I entered in 1977. Um, so yeah. Vietnam War was over. Mm-hmm. It was. I was in high school when I remember I was sitting in Vienna, Austria, uh, when the news came across that the Vietnam War was over uh, mm-hmm. for that then. So yeah. it was the day that I remember. Yeah, time. yeah. Um, What's that like? Of course, you had been to Army football games, and so mm-hmm. you you would, you knew the geography of the area, but what's that like walking in the first day after that many years of having this goal of now making it to West Point? Well, having been to New Mexico Military Institute, I also had the military school background. So I knew what to expect, and I knew not to volunteer for anything, <laughs> which is what the, the best advice that I would have for anybody. Don't volunteer for anything. Uh-huh. And as I walked in, um, I immediately started working with my classmates. Some of them had not had military experience. Some of them had. But we started helping each other out. And so, there were again, it's one of those things of I was weak in some areas and other areas, other people were weak in other areas. So we would forge a team, and I would help people. This is how you shine shoes because I've been doing it for three years. This mm-hmm. is how you might be able to run because I'm not a good, strong runner. Uh, so we worked as a, as a team to be able to do that. And th- we immediately started forging a, a bond right then. And even though Beast Barracks, which is the initial part of that, um, is a short time of about eight weeks, and then we break up and go to our companies for the academics. I'm still in contact with those individuals that I started the military academy with as Beast Barracks. Interesting. So <clears throat> this is, the fe- you know, because I wasn't in the military, uh, this might seem to be a, a, a simple question, but are there different areas of study in at the academy as far as kind of like determining a a degree in a college? So do you have different areas of expertise that you migrate into through the academy? At the time that I was there, we all got an engineering degree. All of our diplomas had engineers. That was it. So it was plain and simple. However, we had areas of concentration. So I wanted to be an armor officer. So I, I focused on weapon systems, mechanical engineering. What a great title for somebody who wants to be armor. And then I didn't do so well in thermodynamics. And so I had to back up, reevaluate myself, 
And because I had lived in Europe and I had studied German and I spoke German, I concentrated in German, and which was a lot easier for me to get through. So instead of worrying about what I'm going to do once I graduate, I needed to worry about graduating <laughs> to do that. <laughs> uh -huh. Nowadays, though, they actually do have different degrees. So you can major and minor just like any other college in the United States for that. And it's not necessarily an engineering degree that you would get. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So four years, didn't, didn't play sports and uh, didn't, didn't make it on the football team? What was really fascinating is I did not try out for the varsity football team, but I did find out that they have what they called 150s football, which is now called sprint football. And at the time, you had to weigh its lightweight football. Uh -huh. You had to suck weight like a wrestler, and you had to weigh 158 pounds or less the Wednesday before the game, which was on Friday. And there were only about five teams in the nation at the time for that. And we ended up being national champions for that. Oh, Something wow. Like that. So that was a So you got, your, you got so your sports fix. When I, I was out on the field uh, one time, and they actually called my name on Mikey Stadium. They said, Kent Troy on the tackle. I was like, I quit. <laughs> I'm done. I've, I've done it. I've <laughs> achieved my goal. <laughs> Uh, I understand. Yeah. I understand. So, and about, and about the third year, though, they all of a sudden it hit me. I'm going to leave here, and I'm going to be commissioned as a second lieutenant now. I've I've signed up for a career, but right. It, but it, like I say, I started off looking at football and and sports. I played other sports. I played lacrosse, which was a fascinating sport that I, I enjoy doing. I ski, uh -huh. so I learned to ski, and I was a ski instructor there. Yeah. So I did a number of other sports there, and everybody did that either intramurals that there was there for wrestling, boxing, soccer, things like that. But you, you told me that while you were there, Coach K, uh, Coach, and I, I'll mess up his name so you can say it better than coach I can. Coach Khrushchevsky. Yeah, with uh -huh. uh, the Duke uh, basketball coach uh -huh. was the coach there at, uh, at West Point. So uh -huh. you got to see him coach there at West Point. Yes. Uh, he was a player beforehand at Army, came back, was assistant coach at West Point, and then uh, was the coach at West Point while we were there. And as a plebe, you have to know all the coaches and the captains of the football teams. So you'd ask the uh, the young plebes, uh, okay, who's the coach of the basketball team? That was the favorite question because they would always screw it up. It was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I understand. So we got to know, okay, Coach Khrushchevsky. Got to know how to say his name. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So what happens next? Do you, you graduate from West Point? Um, I graduated from West Point in 1981. Four days later, I got married to my high school sweetheart. Wow. So right there at the military academy and the cadet chapel, which was just a fascinating experience for me to be yeah. able to do that then. And I bet your father, who was a graduate as well, that yeah. had to have been a proud moment for him. I, I think it was very much. Uh, he, he came there. A number of his classmates were also there. And if you are a graduate and your father is that then they call you a class godchild so i was a godchild for the class of 46 i see and so a number of the other graduates that were there from 46 and there were four of us in my class that were there uh, we were all there and being recognized by the, the class of 46 as official godchildren for that interesting that so, yeah uh -huh. so get married what's what's next i'm off to um, a couple of schools i went to the itv tow trainer course i went to the armor officer basic course and then i headed off to my first assignment uh, which was at Berblingen in the 1st Infantry Division forward in Germany. And uh, I wanted to be a cavalryman. Uh, That's wh where my heart was. Uh, but I was not high enough on the academics to get a cavalry assignment. But when I got there, the battalion commander had a, um, a cavalry troop and said, hey, you want to be on the cav troop? <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh-huh. Like that. So I, uh, everything just seemed to have, I was lucky in that regard. Everything just fit right into place. So I walked in and was a platoon leader in C Troop, 1st of the 4th Cav, in uh, Panzer Kasern in Germany. So, uh, again, my ignorance of, of military jargon. So uh, what is a CAV? Cavalry. Cal- okay. Cavalry so, uh, uh, group do, a platoon do. What are they uh, they have armament. They have uh, tanks. What do they? What do they have? There, they at the time that we were there, we had uh, we were broken up, and our platoon had uh, two dra- dragon tracks, two ITV tow trainer tra- uh, vehicles, uh, four tanks, and two uh, a mortar track, and then a command vehicle. So I had ten vehicles that were with me all total for that. Our mission was to patrol. It's just a reconnaissance and economy of force to give the impression to the enemy that that's a much larger force than what it was. And so that's why we had different vehicles to do that. So if they saw tanks and they saw um, ITVs or dragon tracks at the time, they would think, oh, this is different. Uh, This is infantry or an armor unit and that sort of thing. But it was meant to be as a screening force. Go find the enemy. And then once we find the enemy, we'd report that back. We'd get out of the way and let the big units, the armor battalions or the infantry battalions, Mm Uh, fight the enemy and fight the fight. We did not want to be decisively engaged. That was not our our role. Right. While I was there, we had a very uh, wonderful opportunity was we actually got to augment one of the units and patrol the West German-Czechoslovakian border, which was a wonderful experience to be able to do that. So we're kind of at the height of the Cold War, and I got the opportunity to literally be on, on the border for that. Wow. Which I come back to, but later on, I stayed there for five years, my first assignment. and my So last, this would have been like 81 through 86? or I, I got there in 82 uh-huh. through 87. Yeah. That was my first five years and there. And that, that was the Cold War was kind of wrapping up, we, although we didn't know it at the time. No, we didn't. And uh, it was it was still in force. And mm-hmm. so uh, my last year that I was there, I was actually a company commander in the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment. And we patrolled the whole regiments, the 11th Cav in the north and the 2nd Cav in the south. We patrolled the border. And so every three months, we would find ourselves patrolling a section of the border. And we had about 115 kilometers that we would patrol. We would work with the uh, uh, German police, the German immigration, the German Bundesgrenzschutz, as they called them. Um, we would work with them and patrol with them, where we would then uh, observe the Czechoslovakian, which was directly across from us, but we did have a little corner, which was actually called the Triazonal Point, where the small point of East Germany, a small point of, uh, of most of the Czechoslovakia, and then West Germany uh, for that. So we got to, we were in our old 141 uh, Jeeps patrolling around the border, and if we saw a Czechoslovakian patrol, we would report that, or if we saw a helicopter from the other side, we report that. Then. Were tensions high or pretty, was it pretty routine? We were. Uh, I would say they were routine, but we, we kept our vigilance about us. We're, we would never engage in conversation with the Czechoslovakians or the East Germans. But it was common knowledge that if you left some American coins on one of the uh, international border stones and come back a couple of days later, you'd find some other coins there. They would, really? they would take the coins and switch those out for whatever they had. And it was meant as kind of that sort of thing. So I, I, I don't want to say casual because... We wouldn't confront them, and if we did see them, we would just keep our distance and right. report. But it wasn't North Korea. No, and, no, it, was, <laughs> it wasn't the DMZ in Korea. No, no. Yeah. But uh, you could you could just imagine, you know, you were always prepared, knowing that 
if you saw certain things that there might be heightened uh, intelligence that would be reported back. And uh, that would be the core commander or certainly the yeah. commander in chief of uh, USER would be making ultimate decisions about what might be uh, Im- implied as a result of our reports. Sure. So what happens next after 89? I went to um, I went back to do uh, my advanced course for the career course for armor. I then went on to uh, teach ROTC at Tulane University in New Orleans. Um, I'd never lived in a town where I had a professional football team, so sadly to say, not sadly to say, I'm pretty happy about it. <laughs> yeah. I became a Saints fan, and my son was born there. It was the first year that the Saints had a winning season, so it has to be a Saints fan. There you go. And so for four years, I had the opportunity to um, teach young men and women uh, about the military. Some of them went on to uh, want to be, continue on and become an Army officer. For that, some of them just said took two years and took that as, okay, I'm a little bit smarter than what I was as far as what the Army is and citizenship. But then uh, other ones went on to become contracted and go on to become Army officers, mm-hmm. which I had the opportunity to run into three of them later on in life, which uh, was very gratifying to see that some of those people, uh, how well they had done as a result of, I take some part of credit for that as saying, hey, they got to be where they are as a result of some of the things that uh, I was a part of. Yeah, yeah. So Tulane, and then uh, and then what's next? Tulane, then I went back to Germany. I have to go you to You love Germany. Germany. I wow. love Germany. I'd go back to Europe uh, anytime. So we uh-huh. went back there, and I, there was a job that was available for me as a force developer, force developer at 5th Signal Command uh, in a town called Worms. Uh, spelled like Worms, but it's pronounced Worms. Worms. I'm very careful about that because my other son was born when we were living there, and we didn't want worms on his birth certificate, so we made the trip all the way to Heidelberg to really? make sure that he was going to have Heidelberg on his passport and everything like that as a birth certificate as opposed right. to worms, worms. and like that. So. Yeah. But while I was there, uh, I got promoted to major, and I had the opportunity to become a battalion operations officer for a tank battalion that was in Mannheim. And that tank battalion was, and being a force developer, I had some of the inside information of what was going to happen to some of the units and bases that were closing there. But I took advantage of this one because I knew that unit was coming to Fort Lewis, Washington. Mm -hmm. So I said, that would be a good unit if I could get to. So I came to uh, that unit. I was there for uh, about six months. And then we packed up the entire unit, put them on three airplanes, and shipped them all off along with all the tanks here to uh, Fort Lewis, to Washington. Fort Lewis. And this is how I first came to Fort Lewis, Washington. Interesting. You've never been to this part of the country I'd before? Never been. I've been in Hawaii, but that was as far yeah. as, as I'd been, but I'd never been up here in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, the dates are escaping me now. So when the wall, the, the Berlin Wall came down, what year was that? Was that that was after Bush? It was in the nineties. Uh, so it was like ninety one or something. So you were already gone from Germany yes, at that uh-huh, time. Uh-huh, so yeah. you didn't get to experience that part of. I imagine for those military people that were there, it was would have been a, an amazing experience. Oh, and I have a number of friends that were there, um, and they said it was. First of all, there was a, a lot of doubt. It's, What's our job now? Is <laughs> what are we going to do? You can just imagine, is you know, having a hundred thousand or number of folks that are five hundred thousand military that are there, and all of a sudden, and by the way, we had done nothing as far as improving the infrastructure. So our concerns, the housing, and everything like that was they were kind of falling apart. 
So now they said, you know, we haven't done anything for 40 years. Let's go ahead and fix them up. <laughs> so I spent a whole lot of money, and then all of a sudden the wall comes down, and we turn around leaving it all yeah. and giving it back to the German government. <laughs> it's like, uh, of yeah. course, could wait another five years, it would have been fine. Exactly, that, but, exactly. So you come to uh, the Northwest. By then, you're married and have two kids? Two kids. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so now you get to experience the Northwest. We did, and uh, I ended up working with... Um, like I say, I came here as a battalion operations officer, was here for a short time, and then there was a tasking to send an operations major to Kuwait. Um, Saddam Hussein was pushing the 32nd parallel, um, again, pushing it, the envelope for it. There was a contingent that went out of 3rd Army, um, and we, I was an individual augmentee. So I didn't go as part of the unit. I went as an individual to help build this team. And uh, by the time I got there, it had already calmed down. Saddam had backed off the border, but it was still a concern. But we we took the opportunity, since we had mobilized a number of forces over there, to turn that into a training environment. And so as an operations officer, I was working some of the training as well as redeveloping some of the war plans that were going to be in place if there was another war between uh, Kuwait. But I was stationed in Kuwait. I was there for a six-month tour. But I was back in 29 days, so wow. I came so, back right before. So so was that after uh, Saddam had invaded Kuwait and then, mm-hmm. and then, of course, lost the war? And, 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 and he was all pushed back. Pushed so back. Remember, at, at the, the first one, uh, the first Gulf War, we just we neutralized them. We said, okay, go back. They, they turned tail. They ran. There was a highway of death. death. They were all right. going back to Iraq. And when they all got back into Iraq, we said, okay, but we did not— topple the country, so to speak. We did not say, hey, we're going to overrun the country. We just said, okay, go back to being Iraqi citizens and Iraqi army and do your thing. And then we got into the reparations for Kuwait. So going in there, so then he said, well, maybe not so fast. He kind of lined things up on the border. It looked intimidating. So the army sent more forces back over and there. And you were part it. of that? And I was part of that yeah. as part of the headquarters. I got the opportunity to see some of those. As an armor officer, I kind of was left out. I did not go to war uh, during the Gulf War. I was teaching ROTC in New Orleans. So to paraphrase Patton in his movie, it says, I shoveled in Louisiana. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I I was not part of the Desert Storm, but this was an opportunity. So when the call came for me to do that, I I looked at the opportunity as an armor officer to go over there and be a part of something. Yeah. And I got to see the devastation that was over there, which was quite an impact for me. I got to go along the highway of death, and I got to see the majority of the first Iraqi army. Wow. But I really got to see the devastation in Kuwait City as to what had happened. And just a lot of the terrible things that happened, they were true. Uh, mm. And I won't talk about individuals, but I just looked at monuments, um, just buildings that were just destroyed the just for the sake of being yeah, destroyed. Infrastructure. And, of course, at that time he had uh, lit so many oil fields on fire, and that was a major yeah. environmental devastation. Exactly. And those were all put out by the time I got there. So, But mm-hmm. I, could, I could see where they were, well, all the uh, things that were going on for that. But it was just kind of a – it was sad to, to see that something like that could really have happened. For no real reason no. except for yeah. just – It was destroy. a beautiful planetarium. They just go in there, it was all just burned out, and everything stripped out of there, and it was – taken back to Iraq mm-hmm. at the time. But it was just, they just literally stripped everything they could out of the city and took that home. Yeah. Um, so 
it was good to be a part of a, a force that, you know, being in, in Germany, we were a deterrent to a, a real war in Europe, but going over there as another one, I kind of felt like I was doing the same sort of thing and being a deterrent to another uh, Gulf War, another desert storm yeah. type thing. Yeah, Only to know that we did did happen again. Had, had to go and back again, again which, yeah. yeah. It is sad. So were you a part of that second Gulf War? No, I wasn't. So I came back, uh, mm-hmm. and then I worked as an ACRC assignment with the, here with the 81st Brigade. The 81st Brigade is the National Guard here in the state of Washington. And I got to work with them as a uh, small package of our active duty working with the reserve component. So as kind of a coach, mentor, trainer to do some of the things to help the National Guard to do that, which I thought was just a fascinating program to mm-hmm. that. Got to work with the um, the brigade commander, the brigade headquarters, the staff, uh, and help them provide programs for them to go do whatever they need to do in preparation for anything. And ultimately, some of those people that I got to meet actually took the 81st Brigade to Iraq after the second Gulf War. So during the um, um, New Dawn operation mm-hmm. over there. They were actually over there, and the brigade commander at the time was a major that I was working with at the time. So Interesting. I, again, not part of it, but I felt that it was. Uh, uh, I might have had a small piece to, of play uh, when mm. somebody said, "Hey, how would Kent have done that?" You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to do that. Well, so I, I see on part of my notes here that you were the protocol officer for JBLM. I don't know what a protocol officer is. So what happened was I left here. Uh-huh. Um, I was going to be retiring uh, at 20 years, so I went back to TRADOC headquarters in Virginia. They had a job there, and I became a protocol officer. I did that for two years, working for uh, General John Abrams, the TRADOC commander, in charge of all of his ceremonies, senior visits that would come to him. And uh, then I came back here to retire. I had, had such a wonderful experience here in the Pacific Northwest that I actually fought tooth and nail to come right back here to yeah. the Pacific Northwest to retire. I told them I had been a protocol officer when I reported in. They said, at first quarter, Harry, here's a guy that might have been the protocol officer, so you might want to look at him. So they hired me in, in that position. I did that for two years in uniform. I retired doing that, and I took off on uh, Thursday, took off Friday, and I came to work Monday in a coat and tie in the same job in the same office. As a protocol officer, all those ceremonies that you see doing that, that's what the protocol officer is responsible for. So the script that goes with that, the dress right dress, making sure that the units uh, are where they're supposed to be, lining them up, the flags in the right order for that, as well as invitations that go out to people, the RSVPs, the seating charts for that, and then the script that goes along with it. So when you hear the narrator talking about what this was, that's probably the protocol officer that wrote that script to do that. For so, civilians, yes. that's a, an event planner. Exactly. You're, um, you're the guy. coordinator, I did that. Uh-huh. Uh, but not only for that, I would do VIPs visits when they would come. So when you see presidential visits, somebody's there ushering people to the seats. That's the protocol officer Interesting. Uh, at that level. So I would put together programs for the, our chief of staff, for the foreign visitor chiefs of staff, um, secretary of the Army that would come to visit. Actually had the opportunity while I was here to um, um, put together a visit for um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that came here. I did have the opportunity as a civilian to deploy to Iraq with First Corps as a civilian. I never deployed mm-hmm. to a combat operation outside of Kuwait. In uniform, but as a civilian, I had the opportunity to do that. And my wife said, 
it must be pretty uh, pretty busy in the Troy household when Kent volunteers to go to a combat zone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to do that. Yeah. So I went for uh, went to Baghdad for a, one year as a civilian and handled the VIPs that were coming in for them. And I set up a lot of their programs as well as VIP ceremonies, that sort of thing to do that. The third day that we were in theater and that we had taken the reins as being the multinational corps of Iraq, President Obama made a visit. So wow, <laughs> talk about, okay, you start fast and yeah. it kept going from there. It just wonderful to do that. President, uh, Vice President Biden came three times while we were there. So it just never slowed down. And working and setting up the programs with uh, the Iraqi ministers and the other government of Iraq, um, as well as other senior leaders that would come over to help influence the decisions and the policies that would be made for the that year or for the upcoming um, programs for that then as well. Yeah. So it was wonderful to be a part of that and to setting up the programs. I kind of had to understand a little bit of why. So I got a little bit of the insights and why are we doing this? Why is this? A, so knowing the why, I got the insights to be able to help put together the program for it. But it also helped me professionally to understand some of the things that our country was doing and our our uniform forces were doing while yeah. we were there. And you obviously you, you have to work with so many different agencies, I'm sure, even like if President uh, Obama's coming over, the Secret Service has some sort of say on some things, and the military obviously does, and the country itself. And so you've got a lot of uh, plates spinning in the air. That we did. And so not only just setting up, but we also had to do force protection. So that's uh, individual security mentioned social, uh, the security detachments that come along with them, not only with the president, but other senior leaders would have theirs. They would come in in advance, and we would work with them to set up mm-hmm. the program, do rehearsals, walk the grounds, and mitigate any dangerous situations that might be there. Yeah. Then. But my job, I looked at it, was providing the environment for people to sit down together and be able to do their job and sort out what need, they need to sort out. But I just didn't want the, you know, okay, I drink water as opposed to soft drinks or something right. like that, but also the cultural things that go along with uh, those as well. So knowing the, the cultures of Iraq is, and be able to explain those to visitors that we're coming to. We've got about two minutes left. So okay. as we're kind of wrapping up your story, how would you kind of summarize your story as your, your experience at West Point and then all of the various opportunities that you had? So I spent 40 years, 20 years in uniform, 20 years as a civil servant, all dedicating my life towards the the Army. Now I'm taking it for 20 years to volunteer. And so that's the sort of thing that I'm doing. I'm working with the Association of the United States Army, uh, still connected with the Army, still connected with the military and the Joint Base. So after all those things, I had the opportunity to be able to serve my country. Now I want to be able to help those people that are serving uh, and take that window of opportunity to say, let me give back to those people. So many people did so many wonderful things for me while I was doing, while I was doing uh, my job for that. I'm not interested in working for pay anymore. I just want to volunteer and help those people that are doing those things. Well, Kent Troy, I want to thank you for joining us today on Answers for Elders, and uh, we appreciate your service, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to be able to be here. I look forward to Thank Thank you. This has been a special Honoring Veterans presentation of Answers for Elders, brought to you by Carriage. For more information about Carriage, the website is C-A-R-E-A-G-E.com. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors, from fitness, your health and wellness journeys, 
out to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.